welcome to Revolutionary Women. My name is Tess Silverman. Women around the world are constantly creating ways to make a difference in their communities, and today's guest is no exception. My guest today is Harriet Sugarman. Selected as a 2020 New York City Climate Hero and a 2019 featured speaker at the Global Engagement Summit at United Nations Headquarters, Harriet is an influencer and connector in the climate movement. Harriet is the executive director of Climate Mama, an online community that reaches individuals in over 110 countries and all 50 states. As a leader and mentor with the Climate Reality Project, Harriet established the Climate Reality New York City Metro Chapter, serving as its first chair. She was the recipient of the prestigious Climate Reality 2017 Green Ring Award and is also profiled in former U.S. Vice President Al Gore's 2017 book, An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power. Harriet's 2020 book, How to Talk to Your Kids About Climate Change, Turning Angst to Action, is already found in libraries and households around the world. Harriet serves on numerous boards that address climate, public policy, youth, gender and justice, including as board chair of Young Voices for the Planet. Harriet lives in New York City. Hi, Harriet. Welcome to Revolutionary Women. How are you today? I am very well, Tess. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and spending some time with me. So I like starting off by asking, you know, if you can tell a little bit about yourself, and then we can go from there. Sure, I would be most happy to. So I am Canadian and American. I think that defines me in mm-hmm. some ways. I was born and raised in Canada and Alberta, and I spent now half my life in the New York City area. I have worked as an economist, a policy analyst. Um, I've worked at the United Nations. I've worked for provincial governments in Canada. I now, and I know we're going to talk about that, but Mm -hmm. uh, work full-time on climate education and advocacy. And uh, that came from being a mom. And that also has defined me. I have two young adults uh, in my life who I can't believe how fast time goes. Yeah, for <laughs> so sure. that's a little bit about my background. Well, thank you. Um, so you said you were from Alberta, Canada. So were you always aware of climate change growing up there? No, I okay. have not, not really. And, I, and I'm not sure, you know, whereas our children growing up now, I think it's just a part of their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, they feel it, they see it they're learning about it um I don't think it was I it was part of my life it wasn't talked about in in any way that we really understood and I I don't think there was an under I mean at that point in time when I was a child growing up you know we were in a much more stable climate our planet was below 350 parts per million where Mm. Mm-hmm. scientists tell us we need to be. So right. no, it really wasn't on my radar at all. Yeah. And so, all right, so we can get started with, so in 2006, um, Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth came out. How did that impact you? And is that when you became, started to get involved with climate change? Yes, mm. in a word. It, yeah. it absolutely changed my life, that film, and subsequent uh, my involvement with the Climate Reality Project. I actually was involved uh, in following international 
negotiations and committees on the climate crisis since 1992 when I began working a few years earlier at the United Nations for the International Monetary Fund. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, working in the UN office. And one of my jobs at the time was to follow the um, preparatory committee, the early um, committee that was developing the documents for something called the Earth Summit, which took place in 1992. And it was sort of the first time the world came together Mm -hmm. to acknowledge the urgency of the climate crisis. And but that really seemed far away to me mm-hmm. at the time mm-hmm. and uh, or it, it didn't the whole Im- impacts of the climate crisis seemed far away to me um, mm-hmm. and it seemed like we were talking about you know this very big agreement and it didn't seem to impact me and when I saw fast forward 2006 that film I had two young k- children mm-hmm. and it seemed much more real and much more relevant wow and so that was the result. So after seeing that film and you became involved, um, I read that eight months after the film came out, you went to Nashville, Tennessee, to train and become a climate reality leader for the Climate Reality Project. Um, Why did you want to be a part of that project? Yes. Well, so when Mr. Gore had that film come out in 2006, Mm -hmm. and it was a big hit and a success you know as a documentary that people came together you know from was it right all sides of the aisle Mm -hmm. people were talking about it it was um in some ways surprising um but it because of the subject matter maybe but it it was because of the subject matter that it brought people together and one of her his first uh ideas following the film like immediately when after its release was saying, okay, I can do this with my slideshow. Mm-hmm. I need to bring in other people that can go back into their communities and have them do the same thing. So I actually was in one of the very, I wasn't in the first one, but in the first year mm-hmm. of trainings that he did, he started in the fall, in the fall of 2006 and he did six trainings through the spring of 2007 mm-hmm. in Nashville. And so I was part of that initial, uh, training programs that he ran we had very small groups we um he did them sort of every six weeks in a ballroom in nashville tennessee because wow. he was there uh, uh-huh. his first one actually was at his barn at his home oh, I, really? I wasn't in that one yeah oh so that might have been a cool one to be at yeah. um to but, be right uh, there in nature that's amazing yeah right but then it got he realized you know he couldn't fit it a lot of people so that that one grew from I think that one was 50 people and then the ones we had were between 125 and 200 and that was that first year now um you know the last training I was involved with was a summer one this past summer it was Mm -hmm. our first online training because of COVID and Mm -hmm. we trained um in two sessions close to 10,000 whereas in that first year the whole year with six trainings, we trained a thousand people. So, you know, it's on a different scale now. Yeah. Oh my goodness. What a huge jump. That's amazing. That's really, really awesome. Oh my goodness. Um, so then you established the first local chapter for climate reality. Um, and you were the first in New York City and you were the first, you were the chapter's first chairperson. That's quite an accomplishment. I mean, did you feel then that you have you found your calling well I, I really did and it, and in fact so to take you back a little bit so I did the training in 2007 and then was trying to figure out where was my voice how was I going to raise my voice uh, mm-hmm. through this and so 
two years later, I founded um, Climate Mama, talking to parents um, or caregivers about the reality of the climate crisis. I also, though, was connecting to my climate reality community and family mm-hmm. in the local areas where where I was. And there, that was before we established chapters. Early on, we didn't have chapters with climate reality. In fact, the chapters, uh, the local level connections in a more formal way didn't happen until 2017. Uh. But prior to that, I was um, an informal organizer locally in the uh, tri-state area around New York with New Jersey managed three states. We were a smaller organization then mm-hmm. um, with less people, but still trying to bring people together. And then when it was clear it, after um, the last election, you know, the election of 2016, that climate policy at the national level wasn't going to be um, really, you know, moving forward, local Actions became, and you know, always were, but became much more relevant in terms of how we would organize locally. So it made sense. I'd been a mentor many times for climate reality. I'd been involved with the organization for a lot. I, I feel really close to the people I've met there and to the organization. So uh, it made sense that I would be part of the team that created our. New York City Metro chapter, mm. and uh, and I b- became the first chair of that. Yeah, so you mentioned Climate Mama. You're the executive director of Climate Mama, and I love the motto you have, which is, tell the truth, actions speak louder than words, and don't be afraid. Where did that motto come from, and why is that <laughs> important You know, to, to, to learn? Thanks, Tess. Well, I bet it's something that, you know, you probably talk to your daughter about or maybe learn from your parents, right? Broadly, Mm -hmm. those concepts, uh, I think that all of us try to instill uh, in our children in one way or another. And for my work with Climate Mama, Mm -hmm. it just seemed like a real basic thing that we needed to adhere to in terms of telling the truth about the reality of the climate crisis to ourselves and to our children, that showing through our actions, we weren't sitting still, we were, whether it was actions that we're taking as individuals or as a community and um then to not be afraid because it's so scary mm-hmm. so we are we you know working through those fears and taking action is also important so i love that you <laughs> asked me that question thanks oh my Tess. Gosh, yes i mean i've seen a few videos with you as guests and and talking about your motto for climate mama and i think that's amazing because you know it's really simple um and but at the same time, people still, you know, don't really apply apply it because I guess they have their own notions about it or they want to do their own thing. And it's really simple. <laughs> you know, it's, right. it's like, you know, it's like um, don't do unto others. Don't do unto others what you don't want do, uh, done unto you. So the golden rule. So it, it, in a way, it really is self-explanatory. It's like, well, just, you know, just follow these three steps and you should be good, but you know it. It tends to be more complicated, of course. You know because of what we're going through currently. Um, but of it, course, <laughs> of course. But you're right. I, I think being able to explain it in that simple way, and then once you start going down each of those different paths, yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to go back. So in 2017, you were the recipient of the Climate Reality 2017 
Green Ring Award and was profiled in former Vice President Al Gore's 2017 book, um, An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power. First of all, congratulations for that. (laughs) Thank you. you. Thank you so much. That's so cool. (laughs) And it must have been amazing to be in a profile in his book. You know, first he awarded you the, the, he gave you the award and you're in his book. I mean, was that like an out-of-body experience for you? (laughs) (laughs) It it was. You know, as I said, I've been involved with the Climate Reality Project in many different roles and capacities over the years that I've been part of the organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, that year of 2017 was really awesome. I, in December, in, um, in the, in the spring of that year, we had, we had a training in Denver and I Mm -hmm. was a mentor at that training, but I also was asked to welcome all of our, all of the trainees from the stage at the very beginning on the first day. And we had, uh, you know, over a thousand people in the room and it was wow. Mr. Gore. It was the governor of the, the former governor of the state. And at summer, his book came out and I was one of the climate leaders that was profiled in it. And then that fall, I, I didn't know I was going to receive the award, but I was, we had a training in Pittsburgh and mm-hmm. I again was a mentor at that training. And yes, I was so honored. Uh, the staff took me aside um, <laughs> just before and told me it was going to happen. And we oh all had gosh. a happy cry. <laughs> I got to go backstage and wow. walk across the stage and have Mr. Gore say so many nice things about me. So it was pretty incredible. Out-of-body experience yeah. is a good way to put it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, especially with all the hard work you've put in since, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, since it launched and, and then Climate Mama. I mean, you, you know, you've done you've done you've done the walk, as you say in your book, you know, um, like there's, you talk the talk and you walk the walk and you've done both, which is pretty awesome. You know? Yeah. Well, there's been lots of people, you included so many wonderful women, um, and men, mm-hmm. and lots of women as you, you know, you're talking a lot that I've met along the way, dear friends and colleagues that have helped me mm-hmm. and walk with me. So that's pretty incredible. Thanks. Oh, you, oh my gosh, you're so welcome. Okay, so just this past May, you published your book titled How to Talk to Kids About Climate Change, Turning Angst into Action. First of all, I love the title, but what was the inspiration for the title and the book? Thanks, Tess, for asking that. Yes, the book came out in the midst of a pandemic, and, uh, you know, I'm getting to speak about it actually all over the world, which is really amazing, and I'm not sure if you know, if I was doing regular book talks, it would be the same. So, mm-hmm. but the impetus for the book is really just my um, story and my experience with what I've learned through establishing Climate Mama. Twenty nineteen, mm-hmm. when I wrote the book, um, was the tenth anniversary of the Climate Mama organization. I wow, that's awesome. Felt, yeah, it was awesome, and it felt to me. It, that finally, you know, it. I've been involved in this climate parent space for more than ten years, and but all of a sudden, in 2018, there was this rise of the youth movement mm-hmm. uh, on climate, and fi- not that there weren't young people speaking before, there absolutely were, but the world seemed to really wake up and pay attention. I think it's part of, you know, that the climate uh, crisis was more evident in many communities mm-hmm. across the globe, even though it's you know been building and it's been there always, but. Whatever it was, it um, it seemed like the right time. I was getting asked more and more by parents, "Well, my kids at 
you know, wants to know this, or they're concerned about this, or they, they're active in this, how do I support them? Mm-hmm. So it just seemed like it was the right time for this book for so many reasons. And mm-hmm. one I'd been writing in my head for a long time anyways. <laughs> wow. That's great. But I mean, also what I thought was really a great um, plan for this book was you divided it into different age groups as to how parents or adults can talk to their children about climate change. What was the reason for doing that? I mean, I thought it was brilliant because, you know, each child is different. But did you do that knowing it was going to you're going to do that? Uh, well, good question, Tess, actually. And when I originally, um, the first draft and manuscript of the book that went to the publisher wasn't as um, defined that way. And I mm. have to give credit to my editor and my publisher for encouraging me that that would be a better format uh, or, or a format that would be more accessible to the reader if it mm. was really outlined that way. Because as you said, Every child, you know, even at different ages, the approach is different. Mm-hmm. However, there are some commonalities, you know, by age groups that you can um, that 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 you can generalize more about. And so, uh, we did. I put the book in that in that way and shaped it around uh, those different age groups. I, I thought that was really um, brilliantly changed conversations with children. You know, I think. Uh, because it's their life, they're going to live their lives with the climate crisis as part of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's so interesting now, many young people that I meet, very young children, or, or, you know, even grade school kids, it it is, it is just around them, and they know it, and they're part of it. So it is, it just needs to be part of our conversation. We don't talk about it enough, um, Mm -hmm. broadly, whether it's to our children, to our peers, to our work colleagues, and it's something that we have to get comfortable talking about, even if it makes us feel uncomfortable, right. because, uh, again, it's just part of our lives. And mm-hmm. each of us, you know, can play a role, big or small, depending who we are and where we're at. But it is going to permeate every part of our lives moving forward. And knowing that and being conscious of it, mm-hmm. I feel, is something that just helps us have a leg up then there's not maybe the surprises aren't as great and we can also focus on the opportunities as opposed to the negative side of it right so I think it's really important yeah so true and you um okay so in the beginning of your book you mentioned a term which I never I mean I've probably seen it but I didn't know what it was um the term anthropocene Yes. Um, can you tell me what that term means and why is that significant with regards to climate change? Yes, I can. And, you know, uh, the, the exact start date in terms of the, that's the epoch that we have entered um, of mm-hmm. our planet and it is, you know, questionable, but it was around the turn of the century, around 2000. And basically we have entered the age of man. Mm-hmm. So it is... And it's, a, you know, such an apt explanation for where we are at because we have created this situation mm-hmm. um, where our climate is changing. You know, climate change is real. It's happening. It's really bad. We are causing it to happen and get worse. Um, but, you know, there are things we can do about it. Right. You know, those are the, you know, those 
simple ways to explain that, but the never before, you know, we are the dominant forcing agent uh, on our planet. We are changing the very nature of of the. We put our planet out of balance as a singular species. We have done that, and it's both terrifying and awe-inspiring in that in that weird way to say, mm-hmm. you know, we did this, um, yeah. but because people, you know, a lot of. A number of folks that are the sort of on that denier camp or it can't be just feel like how can we as a species actually have that great impact on our planet mm-hmm. and understanding that we have mm-hmm. uh, and the ways that we've done that is understanding we've entered the Anthropocene, this age of, of man. Wow. And it is interesting that you um, were talking about it is terrifying, but at the same time, it's so inspiring because in your book, you spoke about the solutions puzzle. And I like the title, but what does solutions puzzle mean? Yeah, thanks, Tess. I, you know, I, um, I, I put it in an analogy of, of, of with my own family. You know, we, mm-hmm. do, we do puzzles of when we're away or when we're at home. We always have a puzzle going, well, when my, when my children are home, but when they were growing up. And, um, oh, that's great. Us it, too. <laughs> is that right? And, yeah. and, and do you, and do you think, you know, I, and I think I, I said this in the book, but I'm not sure if my children knew, you know, they'll do thousand piece puzzles or 500, <laughs> you know, big, all these puzzles. It, if they knew that there were pieces missing, if mm-hmm. they would begin the puzzle. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, our, what we're facing now with our climate emergency is, a puzzle that we will never solve. I mean, we won't find mm. that last piece um, in our lifetime because this ship takes too long to turn around. We, uh, we put in place planetary changes that are going to happen and we need to slow them down so mm. that we can live through it mm. and hopefully thrive through it. But that puzzle of solving the climate crisis right. in, in our lifetime, you know, right. we put in place a problem that it will take millennia. It's going to, you know, evolve over time that's not the same time frame of a single human life. In the meantime, we've caused the problem mm-hmm. in that short period of time. So that's my solutions puzzle because <laughs> we do puzzles. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it, it is, it, it will take a lot of work, um, not just for individuals. I mean, as you said in your book, but it's a collective, a collective um, action, which I really like because, you know, I mean, every person can do something, you know, and I mean, recycling is one and, and I recycle for sure. Um, and, but at the same time, it, it's not enough. So the solutions puzzle, I think, is really a way of just saying, okay, there's this thing and we keep, if we keep working at it, eventually, you know, hopefully, it'll get solved. So it may not be in our lifetime, like you said, but at least if we continue to work on it, you know, it, exactly. it will get solved. No, yeah. Right, exactly. And, and you know, that time frame that just goes out into the future, but each of us can take a piece and we can be a piece of that working towards that solution, exactly as you said. And, yeah. um, and when we need, you know, again, some of us can take giant leaps and some of, some of us can just put one foot in front of the other, but we can all do... We can all take our piece uh, and, you know, some of us put together more of the puzzle and others for various circumstances and reasons can't, but that's okay too. Yeah. Okay. So you also wrote about a part of the UN called COP Conference of Parties, which launched a Paris Agreement. 
during the 21st annual COP in 2015. Can you tell me a little bit about what that agreement entails? Sure, I would be happy to. So the Conference of the Parties are an annual meeting of a UN, of the United Nations um, body that gets together to talk about the climate crisis. And so we are into the 26th Conference of the Parties that will happen you know, in 2021 in Glasgow. It was supposed to happen actually in 2025. Mm. So they, they often, the, the meeting itself, and if there's an agreement, it gets named after the city where that oh, okay. uh, event took place. So the Paris Agreement, um, that COP, that Conference of the Parties, took place in Paris mm-hmm. in 2015. Okay. And it was, and so these meetings happen on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. But the Paris meeting was um, a culmination of other meetings where, sort of, the agreements that had been arrived at, the decisions they were coming to an end, and and there needed to be um, some new agreements to move countries forward. And every country of the UN is invited to be part of the COP, usually they're represented by a broad delegation, but often led by an environment minister, which again, it can be a problem because maybe you need the finance minister there too, and you need, you know, maybe justice or maybe, you know, again, so mm-hmm. that's another issue. But right. anyways, in Paris, the, um, and again, there's no binding mechanism with the United Nations. So the UN can't impose anything on any country. Mm -hmm. This agreement that happened in 2015, each country was asked to come to Paris Mm -hmm. with their country plan, their nationally determined contribution, NDC. Uh And and then each country presented that. And the goal was that you would create a plan such that we would keep uh, global temperatures, uh, an increase in Mm -hmm. global temperatures below two degrees centigrade, ideally below 1.5 degrees. But they were sort of goals and wishes mm-hmm. but uh, and then the the Paris agreement identified ways to do that every 5 years countries would come back um you know with a revised plan and uh you know at certain points there would be times to come together and look at all of those plans and that is basically the Paris agreement and our plan in the US our NDC that we took to the COP was one that the President Obama, who was president at the time, set up knowing that, you know, it wasn't going to go through Congress. Mm. He could just take it and it would get approved. So it wasn't as tough as it should be. Most countries' plans weren't as tough as they need to be. Mm-hmm. And if all of those plans were um, adhered to as they were set in 2015, we'd still see a rise, um, scientists think, and maybe this is even on the low side of 3.6 to, you know, even or higher um, degrees, which would be catastrophic because we're not even at 1.5 and we're seeing catastrophic changes. So it was important that COP for bringing the world together again, like the one we talked about before in 1992, Mm -hmm. for governments to come forward and basically say, we're, you know, this is a climate emergency. We recognize that, although they didn't use that word, but Mm -hmm. that was recognized and we need to do things collectively uh, as as a world community, but individually in our own countries, mm-hmm. to to work towards this. Wow, it is. It's a lot of. I'm sure it's a lot of um, things that they still have to work with uh, to work on with regards to climate uh, crisis. But I, I'm I'm really. I mean, you know, for someone who um, who 
is not as involved in the climate um, change area, I am glad that we're back on the uh, having to be in the Paris Agreement. You know, we're back in the the. Um, oh, absolutely uh, yeah. right. It's a it's yes. a signal to the world, right, that yes. the U.S. is involved and at the table and recognizes the problems that are there. And, you know, even if, um, you know, uh, it it was, it was a terrible signal to take Mm -hmm. us out. We were the only country uh, that, you know, signed on to it that then pulled out and we need to be part of it. We're, we're one of the major polluters in the world anyways, but we also have so many great ideas with awesome solutions and we should be at the table there too. Right. And it, it was, a relief, I think. You know, I, I at least I felt relieved. I mean, not knowing back on track with that, you know, and back with with being a part of um, all these other countries who are um, trying to provide solutions for not just climate change but all the other issues involved. It was really, it was. I was quite relieved, and <laughs> I was like, okay. I feel the same way. I am with you on that, absolutely. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I was just like, okay, thank goodness. I was like, all right, we're, <laughs> we're back on track here. Yes, um, exactly. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so I recently saw a video of you speaking about the similarities between COVID-19 and climate change. Yeah, I think that, you know, this horrible, terrible global pandemic uh, that we're all going through, and we'll get through it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and we and we've all, you know, so many of us have suffered in so many different ways. But it's a real teaching opportunity for our kids mm-hmm. uh, and for all of us because there are so many similarities. I mean, it, it's an invisible thing that's impacting the whole planet, right? Same yeah. with climate. It's an it's something. You know, if we could see it, if we could see our greenhouse gas emissions, if we could see the virus, maybe those doubters or people that didn't take it seriously would react differently. Mm -hmm. But as with COVID, uh, the climate crisis is there. It's impacting us in these difficult ways. And the positives, you know, the takeaway from our experience, we've come together Mm -hmm. um, in many Mm -hmm. ways as communities, as families, we've made masks, we've fed first responders, Mm -hmm. we've, we're doing, we're taking huge sacrifices, right? We're, we're not going into the office. We're, we, you know, where we're, we've changed our lives in such a huge way to protect others, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and we're going to need to do huge things if yeah. we're going to um, protect others and ourselves um, from the worst impacts of the climate crisis. So as we have learned with COVID, we can do really hard things. Mm-hmm. Um, we can remind ourselves and our kids of these sacrifices we took on behalf of our community our country and the world yeah yeah that is so awesome that you said that because it's true you know i mean like you said if we could see you know these um gas emissions or if we could see the virus you know yep it would be easier to to fight it but because it's it's invisible you know there are still people who will not probably um, do what is needed because they don't, you know, they, they don't think it's believable. Um, but at the same time, every small thing that you can do will really help others, you know, not just yourselves, but the ones who are in your lives, you know, the people in your lives. So right. I, I really agree with that. Um, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, I was just going to say, yeah, you know, that's exactly it. And 
even though, um, you know, we can't see it, we can see the impacts, right? Yes. We see with COVID, the, you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths, the people getting sick, the overwhelmed healthcare workers as, and we see with the climate um, mm-hmm. crisis, we see the extreme weather events, we see the damages done, yes. the food shortages, water crises, all those things, mm-hmm. but then people don't connect the dots. Mm-hmm. And in a similar way that, you know, when, when they're there so easily connected and yet we can, you know, people put their heads in the sand with both. So mm. I think there's lots of learning opportunities mm-hmm. and things that we can, um, you know, take away in that positive sense from the terrible, horrible year uh, and more that yeah. we're experiencing with COVID. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to go back. So in 2011, you were arrested for protesting the Keystone Pipeline. Can you tell me what led to that? And how do you feel about the way the current administration is addressing the issue, this issue, and are they addressing it? Yeah, it's so it's so interesting, all these sort of seminal anniversaries, right? That was almost 10 years ago mm-hmm. uh, in August of 2011. And uh, the Keystone XL pipeline, which is an oil pipeline that begins in my home province of Alberta and ultimately ends, um, well, the, you know, the current part they're building in Nebraska, but then continues on to the Gulf of Mexico, um, it is, is it has become a symbol uh, for uh, how people think and deal with the climate crisis. And mm. it started such a long time ago, right? And yet mm-hmm. it's still part of what we're talking about. And it's, but, you know, the, when President Trump came in, he, he, reinstated it when um the first thing biden did that first day was cancel it again Mm -hmm. so um but yes in 2011 actually in july of that year i was in the uh northern part of alberta visiting the oil sands or the tar sands um in july and Uh i got to see with my own eyes you know the immensity of the operations up there to extract this very thick uh, oil from the ground that's almost like tar. That's why, it, as a euphemism, it's called tar sands. And oh. um, it's hard to refine it. So, in fact, the pipelines from Alberta, you know, we're, we're traveling all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. That's the idea behind this big pipeline because there's refineries there that can refine this really thick oil mm-hmm. and they're going to send it around the world. Wow. Um, anyways, long story short, okay. I, um, thanks. When I was in Alberta, in northern Alberta, at the tar sands, I got an email from this organization called 350, which um, is an activist organization working on solutions to the climate crisis. And it said, we're gathering people in Washington in August, over two weeks to protest this pipeline that's nobody's ever heard of at mm. that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was like serendipitous. Here I was, I was at the, where it was starting. Wow. And then I was being asked to go down and I actually, it turns out, you know, in conversations with the folks organizing those, that two week action where people were going to get arrested every day, that I was one of the first responses they, they got. I ended up being like a spokesperson in the, for their media campaign at the time in this parent voice. Um, and I ended up going down to Washington, bringing my children um, who stayed with friends overnight, but, and being, arrested on the third day of this two-week action wow. um, and I thought you know who you know why if I can do that as a like middle-aged woman who, who uh, you know from privileged position because I can get arrested and 
Mm-hmm. Um, others can't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I should do that to bring attention to this. And it was the start of this whole keystone process of trying to get it stopped and showing we can't continue to build fossil fuel infrastructure and get off fossil fuels at the same time. So we have to stop somehow. So this was this national action to stop this project. Mm-hmm. And we did. Mm-hmm. Um, still not built. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, like having to make sure you didn't have your phone or you didn't have something that would get lost in case, and and you had to have um, a hundred dollar bill for bail money, or I guess to get out of the jail. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh, you know, it's like it, I never would have thought that all of this had to, you know, that you had to prep for that, and you had to mentally prepare yourself for that. I would think. Yes, um, absolutely. And, you know, the, uh, as I said, the, the, the folks that were organizing had, uh, had legal teams and jail support and they, they made it, you know, we knew what we were doing. The park police in Washington knew what we were going to do. Mm-hmm. Although I have to say that third day, because the first day of the actions on Saturday, the people that protested, they actually went to jail for the weekend. And wow. um, so, well, what they had told us in the, the, training and what they had negotiated seemingly with the police was you would do something called pay and forfeit so mm-hmm. yes you were doing something that was you know not legal and in this case it was basically standing in one spot in front mm-hmm. of the white house where you're not supposed to stand and Jeez. stay mm-hmm. um we, and then you know we were arrested we were frisked we were taken away in um, police vans to a jail but then you were basically able to pay a fine and it was became something that was like a speeding ticket as opposed to a felony charge mm. um so wow. but but on that third day we weren't sure because the other people just came out of jail that morning and we're like well are, are they going to actually you know what are they going to do and you know we did end up being uh, we were able to pay that uh, fine immediately and which was like you know but we did you know, get arrested, get mm-hmm. handcuffed, get mm-hmm. frisked, get taken. So mentally, you're right. That was not part of my life um, yeah. Yeah. previously. And how old were your kids when this happened? Yeah, they were 10 and 11. So they were young and, you know, they, um, we were told not to bring children mm-hmm. um, to that, at that moment because, mm-hmm. um for so many reasons. And so my kids knew what I was doing. They came with me the night before we went to a a church that had opened its doors for the training, the, um, to learn what was going to happen. So Mm -hmm. they knew what was going to happen to me. And then they went and stayed with, uh, a dear friend in Baltimore. And while I was in DC, bizarrely, strangely enough, that same day as I was in jail, got out, got on the metro to go to Union Station to go back, take a local train to Baltimore, there was an earthquake. Oh, jeez. Oh, <laughs> it was my so gosh. crazy. And wow. it actually was, you know, one of these, like it was a fair enough size that you know, the trains got shut down. Oh, I don't know if you oh remember it, gosh. the Washington Monument cla- uh, cracked. <laughs> so oh, it was, wow. I will never forget that day. And so many days there were so many, like just memorable thing. My first and only earthquake I've been in, knock on wood, my wow. first time. Yeah, so oh my gosh. it was a, a memorable day. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, okay. So speaking of your kids, how do they feel? How do they feel about you knowing that you could be arrested and, you know, were they, I mean, how did they react knowing that 
that could happen. Yeah, you know, um, they, I don't know if it's the same with your daughter, Tess, mm-hmm. too. My, my kids, you know, they, they watch us, right? They mm-hmm. see what we're doing. They, yep. they whether they talk about it or not, uh, or how it impacts them, we know that they're always watching. And yes. so um, over the years, as I became more involved and more active on activist type of things, mm-hmm. going to rallies, leading talks, going to the state house, um, they would come with me and they were young enough, mm-hmm. you know, when they're in elementary school that I think they came willingly. I think sometimes in middle school, they came unwillingly in mm-hmm. high school, they would shut their eyes <laughs> sometimes. Mm-hmm. But now, now I know that they, you know, they tell me that they, they saw what I was doing. They're proud of what I did. I love that. Yeah. That's really awesome. Yeah. I, and there's a part in your book where you talk about um, Wonder Woman or Superwoman. Um, <laughs> and I love that because, you know, here you are, this mom, you know, this wife, and this um, woman who has, you know, like dinner with friends. But on the other side of it, you know, you, as like you mentioned in the book that, you know, when people see you on the parking lot, they turn off their cars, you know, right. like, and there's like recycling programs in the, in your kids' schools. And I love that because they're aware, you know, now they, they realize it's like, oh, <laughs> you know, it's like, I better be doing, you know, what, but it's not, I mean, I don't mean to make fun of it but, or, or laugh about it, but I think it's, it's the way you positioned yourself, you know, not like saying you have to do this, but by example. And I love that because it's, you mentioned that, you know, it, it, I'm not two people, I'm one and the same, you know, and so long as I keep doing what I'm doing as the same person, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's all I want to do. Um, and I think it's, it's really amazing because without even doing um, or being, I guess, aggressive, you're putting your work out there and people are noticing and people are really doing what they need to do, you know, and but that that really that piece really stuck with me. And I'm like, that's really cool. <laughs> you know, I was like, I was like oh, OK, you know, it's like, yeah. Yeah, it's just me. But, you know, I do have work to do. And, you know, and, and it would be great if you do the same thing, you know, whether right. that's really up to you. But. That's very Thanks, cool. Tess. Well, isn't it? I think that's like all the revolutionary women you're interviewing. <laughs> so many of us, right? We're we're multitaskers. We're different people in different moments, but yet yes. we're all the same. Um, we're we are one person. But right. I think that is, uh, you know, how women are asked to do so many different things, and mm-hmm. um, you know, and we just we just do them. We so, just do them, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, okay, so how do I multitask this without getting myself <laughs> right. in trouble or burning myself out? So, but right. it's it's true, you know. In your book, you you talk about that, and you have to, and well, with everything that you're doing, you do have to t- still take care of yourself, which is what I love. So, yeah, such an important thing, self care, um, yes. because this is we're in this for the marathon, right? For yeah. the long run, for yeah. the long time, and. We, as much as we recognize it as an emergency, there are other people to carry the burden to and other people whose arms, you know, who people are working on this. And I think too much, you know, oftentimes we put so much pressure on ourselves or our children are feeling it now, too. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to remind them of that, too, that it doesn't rest on their shoulders alone. And it's an intergenerational solution to an intergenerational problem. And 
um, and self-care so we can continue on. I see yeah. way too many people burn out. Um, yes. And yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. I mean, so we were talking about, you know, the Keystone XL pipeline. Um, and so you wrote about climate justice. Why is it important to address climate justice along with climate change? You know what? They have to go hand in hand, right? Mm. Because climate justice, it, con- it, it connects to environmental justice, right? The right mm-hmm. to clean air, to clean water, a healthy environment, food security, and the climate justice part is our human rights um, and historical injustices mm. that exist. Mm-hmm. They they have to be recognized and corrected. They, they've been with us too long. Yeah. And um, if we're going to be successful uh, with addressing the climate crisis, mm-hmm. then we need to be thinking about climate justice each step of the way, because, you know, that over there, it's over, it's here, it's in our neighborhood, it's people down the street. We're seeing, right, that's another lesson, I think, from this year, the um, real cracks mm-hmm. uh, that came with the murder of George Floyd and too many others. Yes. Um, that we it, it's enough right mm-hmm. uh, it, we have to recognize it that addressing the climate crisis can't be separate from uh addressing the racial inequalities that exist in our country and around the world yeah you're so right because and we're still struggling with it we're still dealing with it you know and and so it, it's not going to help our um environment if we still have the same old problems that we can't, you know, that we have to find solutions for it. And it may be slow going, but hopefully we're, we're on the right track, you know, right. so we'll see. No. Yeah, um, no, exactly. And it is, you know, um, well, climate, it's like COVID, right? Mm-hmm. It impacts us all, but yes. it doesn't impact us all equally. Yeah, and just sure. like dis- disproportionately, you know, people of color in poor communities are being impacted first and worst by COVID. It's the same with the climate crisis. They're less yeah. able to have defenses um, against or to create resiliency um, towards it. So right. that's 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 the reality. Yeah, and it's you know hopefully you know sometime within our lifetime we can really like address it and and address it for good. You know, <laughs> I agreed. So um, also you wrote about uh, active hope, intrinsic hope, and radical hope. What do those mean? I love those terms, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, because, you know, hope by itself, we're mm-hmm. just going to hope it's going to get better. Mm-hmm. It can't right. uh, just by itself because these are huge global problems and huge problems in our community. And so, you know, active hope comes, uh, I think Joanna Macy maybe coined that phrase, but it's through our actions. Mm-hmm. Um, we are going to build that hope. Um, mm. and keep it going and intrinsic hope you know again w- w- knowing where that's coming from um, seeing how that's possible and the radical hope is even when we know it's impossible we're going to keep going anyways mm. because we must because there's reasons behind it because of our children because right. of ourselves we, we can't we have to envision that future yeah. that we want to see that's a hopeful one Mm-hmm. And then actively take steps to get there. So thanks. I, I, I agree. That. We have to define that hope. Yeah. <laughs> it's important. Yeah. I mean, hope is, is is a huge enough thing. But if you actually um, categorize it into something that's 
I guess um, that's easy for for anyone to really interpret. If it's interpretable, then it's you know it's doable, right? And I, exactly. and I love that because it really you know it's all about the future, and we can't have a future if there's no hope, <laughs> you know. So yeah, that's awesome. Um, and so throughout your book, there are stories written by parents of children of differing ages, which is which I love. Um, but what was what was the thought behind that of putting stories of of parents, you know, with differing um, children of different ages, and how they are experiencing climate change with them? Yeah, you know, I have so many um, dear friends that are working as I am you know, with both feet in on the climate crisis with, from all over the country, all over the world, with children of different ages. Um, and I thought, what a great opportunity to showcase them, to hear their voices, not just my voice, but to mm. hear from different perspectives and uh, for people experiencing, um, you know, I have a, a friend who just had a baby, what were her thinking and thoughts? And mm. she works deeply on the climate crisis or, you know, people with uh, grown children or so it was it presented an opportunity it was something that originally I didn't think about but then we um I just you know it, before the everything was quite finalized I'm like you know what this this it would add so much to oh the book gosh, to hear yeah. other people's voices too yeah oh, I'm so glad thanks. you did I'm glad yes, you did because I'm it, glad I did too yeah it really, it really did give different perspectives you know from parents of of children um, who are too young or and on others who already had young adults, you know, because like I, you know, for me, I didn't know how to talk to Shana about climate change when she was 10, you know, or even 16, you know, because while we are living it, you know, it's hard for, for others who don't really know how to describe it or, or how to describe how dire it is or, you know, or right. at least right. to see, okay, well, where am I coming from and how am I making a mm-hmm. difference? So, mm-hmm. but I love that you did that because it, Thank you. people can actually like read other people's experiences, which is, right. yeah. which is important. Um, I, I think so too. Yeah. And so, okay. I love your last quote. I'm going to read it. Mm-hmm. Okay. We, uh, we, will be coming, we will be coming to terms with the urgent realities of our climate crisis for the rest of our lives. We all need to get comfortable with, the fact, with this fact in a very uncomfortable way. Okay, so I think that this message is really impactful. And in addition to our children, um, you know, in addition to talking to our children about climate change, what else can we do to be a part of the solution? Well, you know, again, as we talked about, it is to show our children through our actions and our through, show our friends and our community. It's not only talking to our children. We, we, we are living in the United States of America in very divided times and mm. very partisan times. And, mm-hmm. and, and cl- the climate crisis that impacts us all, again, not equally, but dramatically, has been politicized. And it's it can't be. It, mm-hmm. it must be something that brings us together. Mm-hmm. And so we need to talk about it. We need not to debate the reality of it because we're, it, we, the science is, must lead us forward from that perspective. Right. But we need to be able to talk to people, you know, heal some of those divides that 
have really cracked open uh, in our country and and come together on community projects, on household projects, on, you know, in your company, where, whatever it is, in your community, mm-hmm. your, you know, faith-based community, on actions that move us forward in slowing the climate crisis down. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that we can do that and that can be part of our healing Mm-hmm. as a as a country mm-hmm. um because this big existential threat is there facing us and we need to pull the blinders down which i think this administration is doing and hopefully it opens people's eyes mm-hmm. and it pervades every part of our life and we find ways forward yeah. uh, through all those different ways of hoping <laughs> yeah yeah for sure and is that where the chapter you wrote about creating a million ripples comes from I love that term, yeah. by the way. <laughs> Thank you. That was actually going to be the original title of the book, or that oh, was, really? uh, yeah. Oh. It, but there are other books with that title already. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> okay. But I love. Um, I, I mean, that term really is. I mean, it speaks a lot, right? Creating a million ripples. It does, and then and then we create a tidal wave. So mm. you have to start with those ripples. So taking those initial steps when it feels like it's too small to make a difference or, you know, there's an, a, a saying that, um, you know, about the, how powerful a mosquito can be, right? Something so yeah. small, but mm-hmm. if you're in a room with a mosquito, you know, look out, right? Yeah. So, so, yeah, sure. um, so those little ripples yeah. that we can make together can really add up to something big or, something you say or you do can inspire someone that can really climb a mountain. Mm. And so as opposed, you know, so those ripples can react in different ways. They can create waves, they can create tidal waves. Mm. um, And we may not even know it, but it's part of that. Thank you. I love that. Do you plan on writing more books about climate change and for different audiences? Um, You know what? I'm trying to figure that out, Tess. I think I have a lot more to say. I think there's lots to be said in different areas um, from the need for better curriculum um, and and education tools. Mm -hmm. I I am a professor and I see and I'm working on a a number of different um, working groups that from K through 12 and then higher education Mm. that there could be, you know, a way in that direction. I think I'd love to tell the story of some of the people that have been in the, this resistance movement fighting fossil fuel expansion so we can move forward with positive solutions. And then I'd love to write a book about just all the solutions, all the, all mm. the amazing things that are happening from really that positive side. So, so I think so. I yeah. think there is another book there. That would be <laughs> or, awesome. Oh, my gosh. Yes. That, that just means you'll have to come back. <laughs> yes. That would be against the climate crisis. What do you like to do? Yes. And you know what? Sometimes I, I have to remind myself about that self-care <laughs> and to, to the, the, you know, I, I can read something else or, or do something else and the world doesn't fall apart. Um, I love to hike. Oh, I love to okay. um, go for walks. I love snow skiing um, when I can get to places where I can do that. Uh, I love cooking. And uh, I realized in this last year, you know, even in the smallest way, I love watching things grow in, in mm. you know, whether that garden's on my windowsill in my apartment in New York City or, you know, in the ground where I used to live in New Jersey. So um, those are some of the things that give me peace. And I love being with my family and mm. having long dinners and conversations that get us arguing in different directions. And 
uh, I miss those yeah. family and friends, and I look forward to the day we can do those things again. Oh, same here. That's awesome. So how can anyone get involved with addressing the climate crisis? Well, you know what? There. Well, first of all, they should read my book. Uh-huh. So find that <laughs> in your local bookstore yep. or make sure your library has it. If they don't ask their library why they don't. Um, but you, you can find people and community support around you. So you don't have to recreate the wheel. You shouldn't recreate the wheel. Find, you know, look for um, events happening in your town or um, your city. Uh, if you're involved with your house of worship, you know, is there are there people working um, on environmental justice, climate issues there mm-hmm. in your place of business? Um, you know, can there be, are there, there's often opportunities to be able to um, come together with like-minded people outside and inside of that work. If you fa- have a young family or you know school-age kids, start you know doing family plans, family, mm-hmm. family discussions. What is your family going to do on the climate crisis? So, mm-hmm. you know, there are many ways, both from a very you know your your individual family to getting involved with your community to reaching out to elected officials. You know. Voting is so critically important. Our mm-hmm. democracy, mm-hmm. keeping it going and alive, and yep, how sure. our elected—you know, right—we saw that this yeah. year, especially. But you know, we have a lot of promises by some of our leaders on moving forward on climate. Are they actually going to do that? We need to follow through. Right. So, you don't need to be doing this alone, mm-hmm. and nor should you. It's it's more, it's just you know, doing everything as a group when we can. Um, can be really positive and rewarding. So mm-hmm. I would encourage people, um, you don't have to seek it out too far uh, right. to be able to find ways to get involved. Right. Thank you for that. And, you know, we're talking about children, but for young adults or teens, I mean, we have someone like Greta Thunberg who basically, like, changed the landscape for, you know, of, of the climate um, change issue um, for teens everywhere um how important is it for young people to get involved well you know i think young people will get involved at different levels and there Mm. are many young greta thunbergs all around the world in Mm -hmm. every country in every state that are actively leading on the climate crisis and you know again COVID has put a crimp in that for all of us and gathering and rallies but young people are organizing online you know as we speak um around the climate crisis but for some you know not everybody that's not just like it isn't for every adult Mm -hmm. not not everybody has to be in that role Mm -hmm. young people you know you can work with even, you know, your three and four and five year old to draw pictures of things they love to write letters to your elected official. You, you know, it is important, I think, mm-hmm. for young people, like that concept of self-efficacy, of, mm-hmm. of knowing your own sense of self t- to change things. So mm-hmm. as you mentioned, seeing Greta Thunberg or other young people make a change and make a difference, I think is very inspiring for young people people to know they can make a difference in their own way too that's awesome and okay my last question is if you could go back in time what would you tell your younger self wow that is a really good question (laughs) (laughs) if we if I could go back in time I think I would tell my younger self that my path will become clear that I didn't 
I don't need to worry so much about how I was going to find my way to make a mark and make a difference that I, that, that would open up and Mm -hmm. I would find it and uh, I would find my voice and my Mm -hmm. way. I wondered at different times in my life if I would. Mm -hmm. And I feel that through my work on climate, because of the climate reality project, as you talked about, Mm -hmm. through the opportunities that have come my voice on the climate crisis that in my own way, um, I'm making a difference. So I think we all strive to do that. So, Oh, well, well, thank you for that. And I, and you are, you know, you are making such <laughs> a huge you. difference, you know, in this country, in different countries. And I, I love that you're such a, a powerhouse, you know, and, and I, you know, I'm really honored that you came on the show. And I thank you so much for spending time with me and, and just talking about, you know, your life and your work and your continued work. Um, so thank you for, for coming on and I would love it if, you know, you come back when the next book comes out or, you know, and I will be following you for sure. Um, I mean, I am following you already, so, (laughs) but I will continue to follow and I appreciate, you know, everything that you've said here and I hope that people will, you know, get involved in, in, you know, in the way that they can because it does make a difference. So, but thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Tess. It's truly been such a pleasure to, and an honor to be on your show. And I'm so glad that you are uh, have started this podcast and are giving many wonderful women the opportunity to share their stories and as we all learn and hear from one another. So thank you for all the good work that you're doing. And I'm so happy to have been uh, uh-huh. had this conversation. Same here. I appreciate it a lot. All right. Well, have a good one. And I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thank you. Bye. That's our show for today. I've posted more information about Harriet Sugarman on RevWoman.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in every Thursday for another episode of Revolutionary Woman. You can listen to Revolutionary Woman on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Just a little note. I've launched a Patreon account to support the show. All proceeds will go to producing and editing the episodes to give my poor husband a break for being my personal IT and production department. He wrote this. The address is patreon.com slash revwoman. <laughs>